ahead and be seated. Turn with me in your Bibles to Galatians chapter 3. I will back up to verse 6. And that the text of, for today's sermon is verses 10 through 14. <clears throat> this is the word of the Lord. Uh, it has no errors in the original language in which, in which it was given. And it remains to us the authoritative word of God in faithful translations of the original. Listen as God speaks to you. Starting in verse 6. Even so, Abraham believed God, and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. Therefore, be sure that it is those who are of faith who are sons of Abraham. And the scripture foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, All the nations shall be blessed in you. So then, those who are of faith are blessed with Abraham the believer. For as many as are of the works of the law are under a curse, For it is written, Cursed is everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law to perform them. Now that no one is justified by the law before God is evident. For the righteous man shall live by faith. However, the law is not of faith. On the contrary, He who practices them shall live by them. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. In order that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we might receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. Amen. Pray with me. Lord, we thank you for being a God who is communicative. You're not obliged to do that. To us, and yet you have, out of love. Uh, you have shown us our sin problem. You have shown us your hatred of sin and your need as the just God to punish our sin. But you have also shown us the way of escape from that punishment, a substitute, the Lord Jesus. And we thank you that this 
passage holds him up as our hope in ways that few passages do. Please help us to appreciate the marvel of your grace in the gospel as we examine this passage. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Kids, you know when you're trying to do certain things, you need, depending on what it is, but I'll give you some examples here in a minute, you need certain things to do certain things. I'll give you an example. If you're going to, um, if you want to catch a butterfly, okay, beautiful butterflies are probably going to show up fairly soon here in the next couple of months, springtime. If you want to catch a butterfly, it's, well, butterflies, you can sometimes grab them with your hands. But most of the time, you need a butterfly net. You need a net that's built, it's big enough that it'll catch them, but won't hurt them, and you have to get them like that. That's an example. Uh, if you uh, need to uh, climb, and you should never do this as children, but your mom or dad, we'll include mom, um, needs to climb up on top of the roof of the house to get something, and maybe a Frisbee that you threw up there or something like that, you need something. What is it? It's a ladder, right? I don't know of anybody, even the best jumpers in the world, can't jump from the, uh, you know, from the ground up on top of the roof of this church. They just can't do it. Nobody can do that. Everybody needs a ladder. You need those kinds of things to get those kinds of jobs done. Now, it's also interesting that sometimes people use things, um, the wrong thing to get the job done. Uh, I sometimes do this in the kitchen. Won't go into the details there, but sometimes uh, we do things we use things that are wrong. For it. I'll give you a couple of examples that you would understand. If you want to catch that butterfly, you probably don't want to use a baseball bat to catch a butterfly. Right? Probably not the best tool to use. You're not going to catch a butterfly. You might kill it if, you, if for some reason he's passing by and you hit him with the thing, but you're not going to catch a live butterfly with a baseball bat. It's not useful. It doesn't work. You're not going to... Um, hold water and carry water somewhere with a pail that's full of holes in the bottom of it, right? Because the water's going to leak through and you're not going to be able to carry that water anywhere because it's going to be gone by the time you get to the place you're trying to carry the water. You don't use a holy pail uh, to carry water in. Also, you're not going to use your refrigerator to bake cookies. If you want to bake cookies with your mom... At home, you're not going to bake the uh, make the dough and put it on a plate and or on a uh, on a uh, what are those called a sheet, and then stick it in the refrigerator and hope the cookies get baked because they're just not going to get baked in the refrigerator. You see what I'm saying? It's foolish to use the wrong things to accomplish certain things. You got to use the right st- equipment, shall we say? I bring this to your attention, children, because. There, there is a right way to be accepted by God and to be forgiven by God and to be reconciled by God. It's by believing, by having faith like Abraham did, as we read in the passage a moment ago, and believing specifically in Jesus and Jesus alone. 
But sadly, many, many people down through the ages, including some people that Paul is talking about in this passage, have tried to be reconciled to God and be forgiven by God and go to heaven by trusting it, it in part or completely in their own efforts to keep God's law, to obey God's law. And obeying God's law or trying to obey God's law will land you right in the middle of hell when you die. If that's what you're trusting in, even a little bit, you will go to hell for eternity for trying to keep God's law and using that as your thing to convince God you need to get into heaven or you belong in heaven. He will say, depart from me, I never knew you. This passage is about this very point that I've already essentially uh, told you already ahead of time. Listen as I unpack this passage, kids, because it'll affirm what I have just said to you in a fuller way, and I hope you will benefit from that. Trust that God will graciously help you to benefit from that. Mentioned uh, the word uh, justify, or, and uh, has, was mentioned in this passage. Uh, we sang about it in the preceding hymn, uh, particularly in the first verse of the the hymn of Thanksgiving that we sang here a few moments ago. Uh, it's actually it's reference, not the word justification, but the concept. And it's important to understand what justification is before we move into verses ten through fourteen. Justification is two things. And they both, uh, there's biblical warrant for both of these. First of all, involves being forgiven of your sins by God. It's pardon of sin. But it's not just pardon of sin. It is that. But it is also equally and simultaneously being accepted by God as righteous in His sight. It means God declares you to be righteous, to be free of sin in His sight. And that happens the moment a person believes in Jesus for his right standing before God, or her right standing before God. And that declaration, by the way, of God, that you as a believer, or I as a believer, are righteous, isn't because we are. Because we're all sinners. Even as Christians, we remain sinful and plagued by sin. It's because the perfect righteousness, the perfect obedience of Jesus to his Father's law, to his own law, truly, as well. Uh, he is the lawgiver, remember James chapter 4. Uh, that, uh, that perfect obedience is placed upon you and me the moment we believe in Jesus. And then God looks at us and makes that declaration perfection. Because that's what he sees when he applies, uh, imputes or credits the righteousness of Jesus to you. And that is what justification is. It is pardon and it is acceptance by God is righteous in his sight for the sake of Jesus' righteousness applied to you and me that we, uh, by faith. So to be justified by God is tantamount to being saved. There's a sense in which uh, sanctification is also an element of salvation, and so is glorification. But the Bible speaks of all three of these phases of the Christian's uh, life, justification, sanctification, and glorification as salvation. Uh, 
Um, and so we can rightly think of it as, an, uh, uh, and the person who is justified is always sanctified and glorified. But we're, uh, but we're focusing in on justification, which happens the moment we are born again and believe in Christ. So this leads me to the two points that we're going to unpack in the remainder of our time here in this uh, passage. First, if you are looking to God's law uh, and your attempts to keep it, to justify slash save you, you are under God's curse. If you are looking to the law and your attempts to keep it to justify you, you are under God's curse. But if you are looking to Jesus Christ and him alone to justify you and save you, you are no longer under God's curse. And this passage teaches us both of these points. First, if you are looking to God's law and your attempts to keep it to justify and save you, you are under his curse. Verse 10, for as many as are of the works of the law, meaning who are looking to the uh, obe- obedience to the law, law keeping, um, for as many as are uh, of the works of the law are under a curse, for it is written, And these were God's words, Cursed is everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law to perform them. We are uh, under God's curse uh, if we are looking to our own obedience in any way, shape, or form to to make us right before God, to justify us. And this is true even if, if you or I are only relying in part uh, on our law-keeping to justify or save us. If you say, I'm believing in Jesus, I do believe in Jesus. I believe he's the Savior of sinners. I believe he's the Messiah. I believe he's uh, the way to, uh, to se- of salvation. But you say, I'm believing in Jesus, and, and I'm trusting in him, but I'm also trusting in my baptism, or my the fact I'm a good, a faithful attender at church, or the fact that I'm a good parent, or I'm an upstanding member of the community, or I'm a, I'm, a, I'm, a, I'm a nice boy or girl and I respect my parents. If you are trusting in any of those things, you are under a curse. God's curse. So you see, this is, and the reason we know this is because this is what Paul's opponents, um, who were in Galatia, the Judaizers, uh, were doing uh, in and around the Galatian uh, covenant community in Galatia. They were claiming to be Christians. They believed, and they undoubtedly would have said, oh yes, we believe in Jesus. He is the promised Messiah. No, we we absolutely are convinced that Jesus is the promised Messiah. He is the Christ, in other words. They would have undoubtedly said that. They would have undoubtedly claimed to be trusting in Jesus, to make them, or at least help make them right with God and acceptable to God. They would have uh, certainly said that. They wouldn't have been even tolerated for a moment around in the, by the Galatians had that not been the case. The problem was, it wasn't just... Jesus, that they put their hope in. They were also partially trusting in their efforts to keep God's law, the Old Testament law, the Mosaic law, and perhaps some human traditions that were added to it, although we don't know that for sure. Uh, But it's safe to say, certainly God's law, the Mosaic law, they were trusting in their, somewhat in their, uh, their keeping of that law or efforts to keep that law to make them right with God and acceptable to God. And the Judaizers were trying to persuade the members of the 
the church there, the true Christians, that they needed to do the same. You need to, you need to, God expects you to keep the law, and if you, you know, that, that's part of what makes you right with God, is you, by keeping the law, you're, you're, you're made acceptable to God as well as Jesus, is how the, the, uh, the argument would have run. Uh, run. What does uh, the Apostle Paul, and therefore the Holy Spirit, who is speaking through him, Spirit of Christ, what do, did they think of the Judaizers uh, and their message of salvation through faith in Jesus plus good works? Well, chapter 1, that well-known uh, section there where uh, Paul unloads on them, and the Holy Spirit through him, verses 6 and 7 uh, Of Galatians, I'm amazed that you are so quickly deserting him who called you by the grace of Christ for a different gospel, which is not really another. Only there are some who are disturbing you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. Notice when you distort the gospel, it's another gospel. And gospel means good news. It's not really good news, but uh, the point is it's another message. It's a, an entirely different message. Uh, Paul is saying, and the Spirit of God through him, that the Judaizers' gospel is no gospel at all. Then, in the next two verses, 8 and 9, he proceeds to anathematize those who preach such a false gospel. That is, to devote them to destruction. Anathema uh, anathema is a, is a synonym for the Old Testament uh, word of to devote to destruction. Uh, cherem is the, is the Hebrew there. And it's, a, it's the New Testament equivalent of that. To devote to destruction. Paul is saying, you're devoted to destruction if you teach this stuff. Destruction from, of course, God himself. And then finally, uh, we learn in the passage that we are looking at today, chapter 3, verses 10 and following, um, Paul and the Holy Spirit through him declares that all those who believe, let alone teach, that their efforts to obey God's law play some part in obtaining their right standing before God, those folks are under God's curse. Again, for as many as are of the works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law to perform them. Now the one, now that no one is justified by the law before God is evident, for the righteous man shall live by faith. However, the law is not of faith. By law there he means uh, looking to the law and your keeping of it. That's what he means by the law there. It's shorthand. However, the law is not of faith. On the contrary, he who practices them shall live by them and by implication or die by them, which is what everybody is going to do who is looking to the law, is going to die eternally uh, by their efforts to keep the law and using that as a means of trying to make them right in the eyes of God. Why is this? Why are you and I under God's curse if we are looking to God's law or our attempts at keeping it even slightly to justify us? Why is that? Because again, the verse that he quotes from Deuteronomy chapter 27, it's uh, Deuteronomy 27-26 and found in verse 10, cursed is everyone who does not abide by all things. That's key. All things written in the book of the law to perform them.
his use of Deuteronomy chapter 27, verse uh, 26, is highly significant. If you'll recall, that chapter, uh, chapter 27 and 28, those chapters were uttered by Moses just before the 12 tribes of Israel, that is to say the Old Testament church, just before they were about to enter the promised land to conquer it. This was, this was in the plains of Moab where these words were uttered just before they crossed the Jordan River and started attacking the Canaanites. And Moses is, uh, has gathered them together, um, uh, and, and he has basically said, uh, God rather through him is saying, is promising Israel, I will give you a host of blessings if you choose to obey me when you enter into the land. But he says, I'm going to give you a litany of curses if you do not obey me and are not faithful to me when you enter into the land. You recall he says uh, in that earlier in that chapter of chapter 27, when you go in, you're going to go to Mount Ebal, and you are going to write the law, uh, the, 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 the curses on a stone, uh, at Mount Ebal, and uh, then and then the, and we read a little bit later that the uh, few verses down at Mount Gerizim, which is opposite Mount Ebal, uh, half the tribes were going to stay uh, were going to be uh, on and around Mount Gerizim, and half the tribes were going to be at Mount Ebal, representing the uh, the curses and the blessings that God was holding forth to Israel, saying, "Obey, you get the curses." Uh, uh, get the blessings, rather, represented by Mount Gerizim. You disobey, you get the curses represented by the tribes that are standing on Mount Ebal. That hadn't happened yet. It was going to happen later. It's recorded in Judges chapter 8. But the point is, all here are the blessings and here are the cursings. And, and the list of curses, the very last curse that summarizes them all, is cited by, by Paul right here in 3.10. Of Galatians. That's the last verse. Cursed is everyone who does not abide by all things. In other words, everything that I've just said, uh, or, or will say, and uh, set forth in the law in Deuteronomy and throughout the Old uh, Testament. Excuse me, the, the the book of Moses, the five books of Moses. If you don't keep it all, you're under a curse. Paul's point, by citing the verse, is obvious. The person who does not perfectly keep, perfectly, perpetually, and personally keep God's law, all of it, if you're looking to the law to make you right with God, if you don't keep all of it perfectly, from beginning, from conception to your last breath, you're under God's curse, which is to say his wrath. I'll get to that in a minute. God's law demands perfection, perpetual, personal. Somebody else can't do it for you that's a mere man and a sinner like yourself. You have to exhibit perfect, perpetual obedience to all the requirements of the law your entire life. If you're looking to the law to make you right with God, That's what you've got to do. And if there's even the slightest deviation from the law's demands for absolute perfection, even one slight deviation, then that same law 
demands that you, as a now lawbreaker, be subject to God's righteous curse. Over in James, that well-known verse, whoever keeps the whole law yet stumbles on one point, he has become guilty of all. The whole law and its curses are thrown at you the moment you break the law in one point. And guess what? We did that when we were conceived, folks. When you were, when you were, help me, Kirk, uh, zygote. When you were an embryo, you were you were done for. Because you were, and I was, because we were sinners. We were lawbreakers right then, in the womb, before we were able to ever express our lawbreaking uh, spirit that was within us. We were lawbreakers, all of us. And the problem is. And this is the problem, that we have all sinned. We have all fallen short. We are all lawbreakers by conception onward. Now, Paul doesn't mention that specifically here right now in this passage, particular passage, but it's clearly at the forefront. Uh, he's assuming it in his argument that we've all, we're all doomed if we're looking to our efforts to keep the law to make us right with God. So any time one of us looks to God's law and our efforts to keep it, to make us right with God, to reconcile us to God, to save us, we are automatically, we automatically fall under the law's curse. And that's said again in verse 12. However, the law is not of faith. On the contrary, he who practices them shall um, live by them or by implication, die, uh, and sin is law-breaking, so death is what comes to the lawbreaker, uh, as demanded by the law, eternal death. Because none of us has perfectly kept the law of God. Every single one of us has sinned in thought, word, and deed, arguably, probably, almost certainly every day of our lives. So if any you if there's anyone here today or anybody out there listening to me remotely, if you are relying even slightly on something other than Jesus, your baptism, your church membership, your, your how noble a member of the community you are, what a good parent you are, what a good kid you are, or what a good baseball player you are, whatever, relying on anything in addition to the Jesus of the Bible who is the only hope of sinners you will never ever be right with God and you will never ever get to heaven unless you stop relying upon yourself wholly uh, stop relying upon yourself Why is it? Why is this the case? Why is it so harsh, as it were, seemingly so harsh? Why would God just, for a little bit of confidence in myself before God, why does that so offend God? Why is that problematic? Because sinners can only be justified, can only be pardoned by God, can only be declared righteous in the sight of God, which you have to be to come into his presence. That will only happen through faith in Christ, 
which is to say, through Christ as you look to Him and rest in Him. And the concept of trying to gain God's acceptance and favor through your own attempted efforts at obeying His law is diametrically opposed to the concept of gaining His acceptance and favor through faith in Christ. Again, not that one, not that Now that no one is justified, no one is justified by the law, meaning by law-keeping, before God is evident. For the righteous, he quotes from Habakkuk, the righteous man shall live by faith. However, the law is not a faith. And then he goes on. The law is, looking to the law is diametrically opposed to looking to Christ. You add something to Jesus, you lose Jesus. You actually gain God's eternal curse. That's what you do. What does that mean, to be cursed of God? It means that God's judicial wrath, God is perfectly just, he must punish uh, with infinite wrath, judicial wrath, those who have defied him in any way, shape, or form. He must punish their sin, that that rebellion. Uh, And if he doesn't do that, he's not God. He ceases to be God. And so that judicial wrath is, is, uh, is part and parcel of that curse that's directed against sinners with whom he has not been reconciled. And it is a wrath that, if left undealt with in this life, will remain upon that sinner for all eternity. The writer of the Hebrews speaks about this. The, his audience was tempted to look to the law in part, in part, in addition to their profession of faith in Christ, to make them right with God. And he says about that in Hebrews 10.26, For if we go on sinning willfully, uh, and I think he's referring there to looking to our law-keeping, our efforts to keep the law. If we go on sinning willfully after receiving the knowledge of the truth, meaning about Christ, and that he's the only way, and it's only through faith in him, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a certain terrifying expectation of judgment and the fury of a fire which will consume the adversaries, meaning God's adversaries. Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the testimony of two or three witnesses. How much severe punishment do you think he will deserve who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and has regarded as unclean the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and insulted the Spirit of grace? For we know him who said, Vengeance is mine, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. And then he concludes by saying, it is a terrifying thing to fall into the hands, meaning unforgiven, in an unforgiven state, to fall into the hands of the living God. That's what it means to be under God's curse. To be, uh, have God as your enemy uh, and punish you eternally. So, quite obviously, it's not smart to look to your own efforts to make you right with God in any way, shape, or form. But secondly, this passage teaches that if you are looking to Jesus Christ and him alone to justify and save you, you are no longer under God's 
curse. Why is that? You know, why are you no longer under the curse of God? Because the God-man himself, Jesus Christ, has redeemed you from that curse. Verse 13 of our passage states that very thing. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who hangs on the tree, which of course Jesus did at Calvary. What does it mean that Jesus has redeemed you? What does that mean? The Greek word that Paul uses for the English word redeemed um, was the everyday word for to buy uh, that was used in the marketplace uh, in Paul's day. Jesus bought you, and he uses that language elsewhere in, uh, in uh, 1 Corinthians. So Paul is saying that Christ purchased those of us who are or ever will become believers in him from the curse of the law which was upon us prior to our conversion as a result of our sin, as a consequence of our sin. We were children of wrath prior to God's merciful dealings with us. But once Jesus purchased us, we are no longer under that curse. And we are told in the verse that I just read a moment ago that he removed the curse from us. He redeemed us from that curse by taking the curse himself. And doing so on behalf of all those whom God chose to forgive, willed to forgive, the elect, who would believe in Jesus, who would trust in Jesus. He took God's wrath. He took that alienation that we deserve. He took that pain and that suffering and that torment that we deserve. And he absorbed it. And because he was God, he could absorb an infinite amount of that suffering that would otherwise be ours for eternity in hell. And he absorbed it and finally quenched it. The curse was removed, you see, because he was cursed for you and me and all those who have or will believe in Christ as their only hope of being reconciled to God and pardoned by God and declared righteous by God. He purchased us, the text says. He redeemed us. From whom did Jesus redeem us? To answer this question, we need to ask ourselves, to whom were sinners such as you and I indebted before Christ redeemed us? The answer is given by Paul in Colossians chapter 2. Turn with me there. Colossians chapter 2 speaks of this debt that we, as, uh, that all sinners owe to God on account of their sin. He says in Colossians chapter 2, starting in verse 13, And when you were dead in your transgressions and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he, that is God, 
<clears throat> made you alive together with him, having forgiven us all our transgressions, and note this, here it is, having canceled out the certificate of debt consisting of decrees against us, those decrees found in the scriptures, of course, and which, which was hostile to us, that certificate of debt was, uh, uh, was hostile to us, and he has taken it out of the way, he being Jesus, or well, actually uh, it could be uh, God uh, the Father there, having nailed it to the cross, meaning in the person of Jesus, by Jesus receiving that curse, that punishment in our stead. But that's the debt, you see. This certificate of debt is metaphorical. There is no actual certificate uh, that God wrote, because God doesn't have a hand to write with. He is a spirit. Uh, but this is a metaphorical language, and it is, a, it is a metaphorical certificate of debt that was drawn up by the great lawgiver and judge himself, um, whom we all have offended by our transgressions, and that certificate of debt was drawn up with respect to us. So it is to God that we were indebted, and it is to God um, that that payment that Jesus paid was given. The triune God, more specifically to God's justice. God's need that justice be satisfied if he's going to be gracious to anybody. He can't compromise his justice. He can't roll over and play dead or ignore sin and say, well, it's no big deal. He can't do that. His justice must be satisfied. It was satisfied by Christ and that canceled your debt. Indeed. So if your debt, your infinite debt and mine, which we all are conceived with, uh, owing God and his justice, if that, if this debt of yours is ever going to be paid off, paid in full, the price which you are going to, or that is going to have to be paid, is an infinitely high price. And you will pay it if you're not a Christian and never finish paying it, you'll spend eternity paying it in hell, where God is in his justice, meeting that justice out to rebels who are unforgiven. And you will pay that yourself if you do not rest in Christ before you take your last breath. And you know what? You might take your last breath five seconds from now. If you've never trusted Christ, Jesus, who is fully God, fully man, and the only hope of sinners, and if you haven't trusted in him alone to save you, and seen as rubbish everything else that you might otherwise be tempted to trust in, you need to do that now. You will have no excuse in the day of judgment or when you take your last breath, if you do not do that, because you've heard me. So it was from the divine judge, from the triune God himself, that Jesus redeemed the believer.
And since Jesus was and is God, the Son, the second person of the Godhead, another way you could say this is that God's infinite love and grace redeemed you from God's infinite holiness and justice when Jesus died for you. But not only are you and I no longer under God's curse, if we are Christians, trusting in Jesus alone, but it is much better than that. Actually, how does it get better than that? It is, it is even more blessed than that. And that is that we are now objects of his unfathomable blessing. Unfathomable blessing and blessings. Verse 14 makes this point. In order that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham that we read of back in verse 8, the blessing of Abraham, which is uh, in its essence having Jesus with all of that, uh, with all the blessings that come from that, but in order that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we might receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. It is through the Spirit coming upon you, justifying you, giving you a new heart so that you are justified. It is through the Spirit's work that all the blessings that are in the covenant, that are that Jesus purchased on the cross, they all come to you and me uh, because of what Jesus did through the Spirit working in your life. He is the one who who sanctifies you. He is the one who helps you in your struggles against sin. He is the one that uh, provides for you, that uh, ministers to your heart, that teaches you, that instructs you, that illumines your mind as you read the scriptures. He is the one who um, who ushers you into heaven and gives you all the blessings that, that uh, come with being a Christian in this life. Assurance of God's love, peace of conscience, joy in the Holy Ghost, increase of grace and perseverance therein to the end to quote the Shorter Catechism. It's all yours through the Spirit of Christ, whom he pours out and has poured out upon you if you are resting in him by faith. Isn't that wonderful? But folks, it's the only only ones whom Christ has redeemed, for whom... uh, uh, who who receive the Spirit and all the blessings that Christ purchased through the reception of the Spirit, it is only those who are trusting in Jesus alone. Are you? Are you? Be honest with yourself. Think long and hard. It's the most important question you can ask yourself in life. Are you trusting in Him alone? If you are, it's because God was merciful to you. It's the only reason. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for this reminder of the gospel. We thank you that the gospel makes no sense unless... Uh, your wrath, your curse upon sin is held 
uh, at the forefront of that message that is ultimately good news, that is ultimately gospel. But we have to understand why we need Jesus. And we thank you that now we are reminded afresh in this passage why we so desperately need Jesus. Because he bore the curse for us. Your curse, the law's curse, which is your curse, against sin. And we who are sinners, were conceived and born in sin, are no longer under that curse because Jesus willingly embraced it for us. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you so much, God, <clears throat> Father, for for anointing and appointing your Son uh, to be the Savior of sinners like ourselves. Lord, we ask that you would... Um, Help us, fill us with joy this day as we ponder uh, what we've heard. Uh, Help us to appreciate it anew. Use it, Lord, this wonderful grace of yours in the gospel of Christ to motivate us to be more determined than ever to not dishonor you in any way through our thoughts, our words, or our deeds. And Lord, if there's anyone listening to me that is unconverted, has been depending in some way, shape, or form and on his or her efforts to please you, would you please cause such a one to flee from his dependence upon law-keeping, that he might have life rather than eternal death. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Receive now God's blessing, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God the Father, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be and abide with you all, both now and forevermore. Amen.